Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. Welcome to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, Today's episode is one I've been looking forward to for a while. As you know, uh, on Soul Talk, I like to bring on guests that I have deep and profound respect for, have been influenced and touched by in some way. And my guest today is definitely one of those Uh, She's a meditation pioneer, a true industry leader, a world-renowned teacher, New York Times best-selling author. She's one of the first to bring meditation and mindfulness. As we know, meditation and mindfulness has become really uh, popular in the mainstream culture today. Uh, She's been teaching for over, check this folks, 45 years. And uh, she demystifies and makes meditation and mindfulness so uh, relatable. Her books, Loving Kindness, which I loved, the newest book, Real Change, also Real Love, uh, have been profound uh, and impacted so many people. So, folks, welcome to the conversation. Let's welcome the one and only Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, welcome to the conversation. Salt Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I've been really looking forward to, to meeting you and today's conversation. Um, I would love, just, just for those that may not know your work, maybe a, a little bit of a sense of, I'm always curious as to how Uh, people got started teaching and doing this work. I'm curious about your journey and uh, what put you on the path? How did you, how did you uh, begin teaching and and meditating and mindfulness and loving kindness? And how did that, that, that start for you? Well, I uh, was a a college student, a university student in uh, the late sixties, the early seventies. And, there was a philosophy requirement in the in the college in general, and I chose an Asian philosophy course. And really, honestly, looking back, I think I chose it chose it because it was convenient for my schedule, and mm. a little knowing it would completely change my life, and it did completely change my life. And it was in the context of that course I heard that there was such a thing as meditation that there were actual methods and practices that you could use that could help you be a lot happier. And I was not very happy. And somehow, and I look back at this moment so often, like, why didn't I just stay in college and think, well, I mean, I did stay in college because I got credit for going to India. But, you know, why didn't I just think I'll read a few books about that or, you know, something distant and abstract. I just thought, no, I've got to learn how to do it. So I looked around the city where I was going to school, didn't see it anywhere. And I created an independent study project and I presented it saying, I want to go to India and learn how to meditate for a year's worth of credit. And they said, okay. So off I went. And, and that's actually how I began. I, like many people, I stayed a little longer than my year. I went back to school. I did what I needed to do to get two years of independent study credit. 
and then went back to India. And I was finally coming back. This is in terms of how I became a teacher. I was coming back in 1974 to the States for what I was confident was going to be a very short visit back before I went over to India again for the rest of my life. And I went to see one of my teachers who was a woman living in Calcutta. Her name was Deepama, or her nickname was Deepama, Deepa's mother. Mm. And I was just getting her blessing for my short trip back. And she said to me, well, when you go back, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. <laughs> she said, yes, I won't. I said, no, I won't. That's absurd. Like, I never thought for a moment I could do that, that I was capable of that. And, and she just kind of said, yes, you will. And um, that's actually how I became a teacher. And that's how it started? Was it was just it just arose was there like a moment where you said okay this is what i'm going to do because it went from no i won't to like <laughs> was there a moment well, where it just hit you like yes that, that you owned it or was there a yes but i mean it was almost like um that too i i got back to the states and uh i had met this friend joseph goldstein at my first retreat so i'd known him for some years in india and then he was already back. He was teaching in Boulder, Colorado. It was the the first summer session of Naropa Institute. It was just opening up, and um, a number of friends and I decided to go out to Boulder and visit Joseph, and uh, Joseph was invited to stay on for the second summer session, and he invited me to stay with him. So I started teaching with him, and then we were invited to teach a month-long retreat, and then we were invited to teach a 10-day retreat, and then another 10-day retreat. And it just was this very haphazard life. We mm -hmm. uh, we had met Jack Cornfield in uh, Boulder. And so it was some combination of the three of us plus a couple of other people. And we'd respond to an invitation. And if we didn't get another invitation for a while, we were just, we had nothing. We were sleeping on people's living room couches and, wow. <laughs> you know, just like waiting for something to happen. And but it kept happening, and then the invitations would come, and more invitations would come. And one day, one day, somebody said, "Why don't you start a retreat center of your own?" Mm. Uh, which we actually ended up doing. And so I, I was like, it was like I woke up one morning and I thought, "Oh, she was right." You know, like <laughs> I never would have guessed, but she was right. So it felt like it just kind of unfolded, from what I'm hearing, right? Yeah, it was a happening. And, it did and unfold. It wasn't so much like, was any of it your intention? Because, you know, we often hear sometimes you have to have an intention. You know, you have to know where you're going. You have to hold the vision of a goal in your mind. And, and yet I'm hearing, when I'm hearing your story, it just unfolded. And so. This yeah, I think it really just unfolded. And I think uh, the same was true for the retreat center. I think I held on to certain intentions was, mm -hmm. you know, like try to do some good in this world. Or I had learned methods that I had a lot of confidence in. They really served me very well. And I was a different person than the person who went to India seeking. And I wanted very much to share those. And I had so much confidence in those tools that um, that was really my strongest intention. Mm. was to to really be able to share that. In some way, it's so funny because in this time right now, I have the same feeling, you know, people are going through so much and 
it's so hard in so many ways. And I think, well, you know, these methods might be of help. Yeah, yeah. And I would really like to share them. So that was more of an intention than, yeah. uh, you know, people say, because we started this retreat center in 1976, it's closed at this moment, but it's still flourishing and successful and has uh, influenced a lot, a lot. Mm. Um, and people say, oh, you must have had such vision. You must have had such courage. Mm. And I say, no, not really. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> We took it one day at a time. Our, our mantra for the first year was we can always, always close in a year. We can always close in a year. Maybe it's not going to work. And we made plenty of mistakes, but we just kept going. Wow. Wow. How much of life, I mean, before I d dive into some questions around meditation and mindfulness, how much of life do you feel we have, we are in control of and how much do you feel is perhaps, I guess, let me use the word destiny, you know, just where's the balance? I mean, do, do you feel we are in control in some way? Talk to me about your thoughts there. I think mostly not, not so much about control, although one could phrase it that way for sure. But, um, for example, in meditation, one of the lessons apparently I needed to learn again and again and again because I can trace back the history of like, oh, in 1972, this teacher said this to me. And in 1978, that teacher said that to me. And they were kind of the same lesson, you know. So um, to encapsulate it, as one teacher put it to me, you cannot control what will arise in your mind. You know, you can't say, I've grieved long enough. I'm never going to be afraid again. I'll never fall asleep meditating again. Because when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. Can we influence those conditions? Yes. But can we absolutely control them? No. And we feel so uh, so much self-blame and, and regret. Like, as, as this teacher said to me, why do you... Why are you so upset about that thought that has come up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you like to say at 3.15, I'd like to be filled with self-hatred, please? No. Mm -hmm. But when conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. How we respond to it, whether we take it to heart or we let go of it, that I think we have a tremendous amount of choice. How can we create some of the conditions? You're talking about creating the conditions. How can we create the conditions that might be more conducive to uh, experiencing internal freedom if we can't control the thoughts that are arising? Well, we, we do train in, in relating to the thoughts differently. So it's very different when something arises as, a, well, in, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, they'd use the image like a cloud moving through the sky. Mm compared to like a, a leaden weight that you then absorb, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really so much of mindfulness training. It's about relationship. How am I relating to this sorrow? How am I relating to this pain, physical pain? Yes. How am I relating to this joy? Mm. Mm. So let's say I have a, a, a negative thought. Uh, I think many mm -hmm. times, especially when we're uh, riddled with fear, yeah. And, and, and for those of us that might have, let's say, streams of negative thoughts, and sometimes those negative thoughts can even seem addictive in some sense. And we, mm -hmm. we may mm -hmm. not be able to, to get off of the train of the, the negative thinking. And so how can we begin working with the negativity of the mind in a way? How, how mm -hmm. do we mm -hmm. 
start shifting that relationship of of, of negativity and fear that tends to spiral, especially when it feels like we can't get off of it, we can't get out of it, we can't shift that relationship. Well, we can't shift the arising, but we may be able to shift the relationship, but we, we probably uh, don't feel that's enough, and yet it, it could be enough. you know. So some of it is actually understanding and um, understanding in the sense of insight and then applying the tools. So for example, uh, here too, just a stream of negative thinking can be perceived as like a almost like a toxic storm moving through your body. Mm. Uh, but it's like a weather system moving, and that's compared to I'm such a horrible person. I always have been. I always will be, and almost like as you say, getting addicted or, or almost like holding all those thoughts and identifying with them and. Uh, imagining a future that is only beset by those very same thoughts. And probably the um, one clear example I, I try to use for that um, is this quality in meditation we call proliferation, where something happens and it's not just seen as the thing as it is, but we add to it sense of isolation. I'm the only one who ever feels this way, or I should have been able to stop this. This is all my fault. Or um, the story I sometimes tell when that very same friend Joseph and I were teaching together somewhere and just sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea. And someone came in and said to Joseph, I just had this really terrible experience. So Joseph said, well, what happened? And he said, I felt all of this tension in my jaw and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people and it's never going to change. Mm-hmm. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And it was really interesting for me watching them go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Joseph said to him something like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like genuinely painful to feel that tension in your jaw, but now you've added, and I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Oh, right. So the first thing we say in mindfulness is look for the add-ons. Mm. That's what we seek to relinquish or let go of. It still leaves you with a painful jaw, which hurts, but that's different than like that pain plus. Mm. You know, and, and we do that in so many ways with physical pain, with emotional pain. Uh, we get lost in anticipation. What's it going to feel like tomorrow? Will be even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so some of it is kind of general suggestions like that in terms of changing the relationship. Sometimes it's very specific in terms of seeking a kind of balance. Like if you you do have a lot of overwhelming fear, mm-hmm. uh, as an example, something I've seen in sitting and looking at my own fear. Um, is first of all trying to let go of the add-ons, you know, blaming myself and all of that, and just being with the experience. Something I've seen is that unlike the words, world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, which of course is also true, I'm afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. And it's all the stories I tell myself that really get me going. And even in the midst of that, when I can remind myself, you know what, you don't know. I feel relief. I feel some space. Um, and so some of it is a personal insight. And then things like cultivating love, 
love for yourself and love for others is like the direct antidote to fear. So it's like you see my energy is kind of conditioned. It's set to be a certain way. And if I do this other practice, it'll give me another option as a way of being. If someone has physical pain, I'd like you to talk a bit more about that. You know, the pain is real, and you mm -hmm. talk about look for the add-ons. So once we look for the add-ons, how do we work with that? Like the pain is, but I might be saying, Sharon, but this, the pain is still there. Mm -hmm. The pain hasn't mm -hmm. gone away. What do I do with this pain? How, how, how do I be with this pain when it feels painful? Yeah, yeah. Well, the... Um Relinquishing of the add-ons, first of all, is not a small thing. You know, it yes. does leave you with physical pain. Right. But uh, I think of this study, um, this friend, this neuroscientist in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, did Richie Davidson, where uh, he had a group of people who'd been practicing mindfulness for eight weeks, and mm. he had a group of people who'd never practiced at all. And everyone, because he's a neuroscientist, Everyone is an fMRI machine, you know, their brains are being looked at. And he got permission to induce physical pain in people. And it's very interesting for us because we use physical pain as the model for emotional pain, for heartache, for disappointment. And what he found was the strongest difference between the meditators and the non-meditators came after the pain was withdrawn because the non-meditators would flip immediately into a cycle of anticipation. When's mm -hmm. it coming back? How bad's it gonna be? Maybe it'll be even worse. So they never got any rest, they never got any peace, they never got a break. And at the same time, the meditators would have whatever reaction to the pain, because that is real. And then the pain was withdrawn and they could relax. And they got some peace and they got a break, which affected how they could then be with the next bout of pain. And so sometimes it's as fundamental as that. I've also found that if we can work to let go of the add-ons, then we can even explore the pain in a certain way. Like sometimes when we have physical pain, the whole rest of our body tightens up as though to somehow expel the pain, which means we've added tension to pain. You know, so we learn to be more relaxed, to be with the pain and look into it. And what we see is it's not actually a solid thing. It's moments of pressure, moments mm. of burning, uh, moments of twisting. Like none of that sounds good and none of that feels good, but that's an alive system. And it's a very different experience. As one person said to me who had a very severe chronic pain condition, she said, I found the space within the pain. Even though the pain may endure, she found the space within it. Found the space within the pain. Wow. Are there any other ways to, you talked about exploring the pain. Are there any other ways to explore the pain that you can share with us? Yeah, we, you know, we say things like, see if you can find the most intense spot. Don't try to take in some massive area. And notice if as you're looking at it, it gets stronger, it gets weaker or it stays the same. There's no right answer to that. Sometimes it's scary with a teacher when they ask you that and you think, oh no, it's supposed to have gone away and didn't go away. But, yes, yes. You know, there's no right answer. It's just 
bringing that level of interest to the experience. Mm. Got it. In terms of um, emotional pain, such as uh, fear, you know, as we're having this interview, we've had an intense year, 2020, mm. uh, and a lot of uncertainty triggered a lot of fear for a lot of people. And um, people have, you know, we've, we've, we've lost loved ones through yeah. death and it's been painful emotionally. And in terms of, let's just start with, let's say, yeah, I want to go to this fear of death. How does one begin? Because death is something that's been much more at the forefront of our consciousness in 2020. Mm-hmm. How do we begin to deal with this fear of death, this fear of dying? Well, I think, you know, on one level, it's it's the most natural feeling of all, you know, like, mm. uh, and I think it, it's certainly been useful for me to also see what my personal conditioning is around this. You know, it's like my mother died, for example, when I was nine years old. Mm. And my grandparents, who then raised me, um, had a you know kind of a cultural belief that they just shouldn't talk about her anymore because that would that would make things worse for me, which of course was a big mistake. <laughs> but um I realized, you know, largely when I went to India and, and death was like out on the streets, you know, rather than something hidden, that I had a very weird relationship to death. I think we all have obviously fears and stuff, but on top of that, I had such a strange um, personal kind of conditioning. You know, it was like a, a different kind of annihilation. And... Uh, I had to work through that. And I think that uh, most of us have something along those lines. And to realize that even to do the exploration means that we're going against many, many messages that we've received, like, uh, you know, the kind of consumerism, like if you only accumulate enough, you'll be safe. Mm -hmm. And so many things we accumulate are like totems against death, against change. Um, and I think the more we understand reality and how much everything is constantly changing, and I think it's not just metaphysics or poetry. I think it's actually true that we are dying and being reborn in every moment, and we can experience that directly. And the more we do, the less it seems like this calamity at the end, you know, that's like a big surprise, totally disconnected from anything we've gone through. I think it also is a worthy contemplation because um, for a while in America, they were talking about um, different speakers and like thought leaders were talking about the distinction between resume values and eulogy values. Mm -hmm. Like people don't really want, and it doesn't really happen that somebody gets up at someone's memorial service and says, they were a workaholic. (laughs) You know, they got 15 promotions in five weeks. It's like that's not actually the enduring legacy of our lives, you know. That might be in our resume because we want the next job uh, or the next advancement. But 
in terms of how we want to be remembered, it, it's never that. It's And if it's that, then it's someone's child, you know, in tears because, like, they never knew their parent. Um, you know, so there was sort of a an exercise we were encouraged to do, you know, like, what is your legacy? What? How do you want to be remembered? And that forms the North Star of your choices, of your values in your life. Got it. How do I want to be remembered? Let's say I'm gripped with the fear. How do I work with the fear as it's arising? Whether it's the thought around, oh shit, I'm going to die, you know, or the sort of energetic, emotional feeling or the bodily sensation. Can you guide us there? Yeah. I, I think, you know, there are many choices and it's also not pass-fail. Mm. You know, we see what helps us feel more balanced because the goal can't be to eradicate the fear. We don't know if it's going to go away or not in this moment. It'll go away eventually. Right. But... uh again, to have a different relationship to it. Mm. So sometimes it's just feeling it in our body uh, helps. It helps us get away from the obsessive thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, what if and what if, what if that? And, and sometimes it's watching the fear movie. You know, like what are the other strands of feelings, of emotions that are enmeshed with that? Like if we look at anger, for example, very strong anger, we will likely see fear and sadness. And almost always, if we look at anger, we will see a sense of helplessness in there. Mm. And once we get to the helplessness, then we might resolve on taking strong, or even a small action somewhere. It like channels that energy. If we look at grief, it said that we will find love in there somewhere because grief is like love that doesn't have the usual place to land. The person is gone or the situation is gone or the set of ideals are gone. And so what happens if we can just sit and allow ourselves to look at fear? What will we discover? Mm. Um, maybe it's loneliness, you know, that... Yeah. It feels so unfair that we have to deal with this without enough support or whatever, you know. Um, and that that's a, a journey just to be able to sit and kind of unpack the feeling. And I would also say that uh, bring comfort to yourself, you know, wish yourself well. Do lo- love, loving kindness for yourself. May I feel safe. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. Uh, it, it's like hugging yourself or holding yourself. And it's allowing the fear to play out, but in a kinder atmosphere. Mm. Mm. Talked about loving ourselves and being kinder to ourselves, which obviously, you know, sounds good. (laughs) 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 You know, and many of us, we know we should, like I should be loving to myself and it would be helpful and beneficial, yet I guess why is it so hard, Sharon, sometimes, you know, to to to, to find that place of compassion, uh, of, of being kind? What, 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 why are we so hard on ourselves? Why is it so hard to, to be loving to ourselves, especially in 
certain moments where, you know, I think even sometimes self-improvement can be used as a kind of whip on ourselves to, to, to sort of drive ourselves and, and, and sometimes is motivated from a sense of feeling not enough. And so how do we, how, how do we cultivate a deeper sense of self-compassion when we don't, when we don't feel it? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that so often effort towards self-improvement is, uh, based on, you know, a really strong dislike of ourselves. Yes, yeah. And it doesn't usually work. Um, some of it, I think, actually is understanding, you know, that for all the times I've talked about self-compassion, mm-hmm. uh, almost always somebody raises their hand and says, well, that's just laziness. Mm. You know, that you have to be hard on yourself, you have to push yourself, and, uh, you know, you can't just go around forgiving yourself when you've made a mistake. and um, and yet I think that is a misunderstanding that if we actually look at our experience, like when do we give up? Mm. You know, when do we feel just exhausted by our efforts? Yes. It's not when we have too much self-compassion. You know, it really isn't. And I think even studies are starting to show that a kind of harsh, punitive environment will spike our performance in anything but briefly, and then we crash. Yes. That the most effective, efficient way to sustain an effort towards something or try to learn something new or develop a new habit is actually self-compassion, which doesn't mean you pretend that you didn't make a mistake, you know, but it's like, okay, lessons learned. I don't have to dwell here for 17 and a half hours, you know, mm-hmm. berating myself. Because if I do that, not only have I delayed the ability to begin again, sometimes by quite a bit of time, but I'm so demoralized. I'm so exhausted. I don't have that, actually the energy to be resilient and mm-hmm. to start over. Yeah. In that, in that moment, how do we, how do we begin? Well, for me, you know, uh, the beginning was really a, a dedicated meditation practice because it's like right. strength training. Right. You know, like uh, a very foundational exercise in meditation across traditions would be something like choose an object of awareness, like mm-hmm. the sensations of the breath or a mantra or an image or something. Rest your attention on that object. And when your attention wanders, recognize that, see if you can let go gently and come back. Now that sounds like the most simplistic instruction in the world. And in fact, when I first went to India, that was precisely my first guidance, sit and feel your breath. And I thought that is so stupid. Hmm. You know, I came all the way to India. Where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic exercise that's gonna Mm. Wipe out all my suffering and make me totally happy. Mm. And then I thought, huh, what will it be? You know, 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind starts to wander. And to my absolute shock, it was like one breath. And then I'd be gone. And I heard over and over again, but it took me to trust. That's okay. Because the really important moment is after you've been lost, after you've been gone, when you realize it. Can you let go gently? 
Mm. Can you begin again with some kindness towards yourself? And if you do that over and over and over again, it's almost like a muscle that builds. Mm. So that in life, because every day we make a mistake or we lose sight of our chosen course or, or something happens so that we need a little bit of resilience and we need to start again and again and again. Wow. So it's not like there's one sort of pinnacle point, one special moment that we arrive to through, let's say, meditation or practice when we're, we've arrived. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, things, things get a lot easier. I can say that, you know. Yeah. Why do we create suffering, Sharon? Like, literally, what, why do we create suffering? And is suffering necessary for spiritual growth? Well, the whys are difficult for me, you know? Like, I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> like, yes. Um, is it necessary for spiritual growth? Probably some, some of it is, you know? Um, not. Can we, can we grow without suffering? Because for, for many times as human beings, it seems as though we... We need to create suffering on some way to finally maybe have some breakdown and then a breakthrough and an opening. And is there a way to grow without suffering? And if so, I guess, how? <laughs> well, I mean, I think um, the question I would have would be, are we motivated to do the work if uh-huh. we're not suffering? Because if we are, then I don't think we need the suffering. Mm, 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 mm. But, um, you know, it's like, I again, I think of myself as 18 years old, uh, a New Yorker, going to college in Buffalo, New York, so within the same state. And I'd had a, you know, very traumatic, difficult childhood. And um, I took this Asian philosophy course, and I heard that there was such a thing as meditation, and I looked around Buffalo, New York. I did not see it anywhere. This is 1970. Wow. And I thought, I'm going to go to India. I'm going to learn how to meditate. The drive was so strong because my suffering had been so strong. Mm. And I, as I am fond of saying, I went to India before I'd ever been to California. Mm. You know, and I think now I look back at my ripe old age and I think, that's absurd, you know, <laughs> like. Mm-hmm. But I had to do it, you know, and it was because if I had a totally placid, pleasant childhood, I'm sure I would never have gone, mm-hmm. you know, but you don't have to go to India anymore. Um, you know, uh, very viable paths that are interesting and can be experimented with are available everywhere. But will you do it? Will you do the work? Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. In terms of mindfulness, um, something obviously you've been teaching about, uh, what are some of, are there any simple, you've talked about the breath, Mm -hmm. are are there any other simple mindfulness practices that you have found beneficial, valuable, that you've you've practiced, that you can share with those listening in as a place to begin? Sure. Well, I think there are two... Uh, categories. One is like a dedicated period of practice, and that's like maybe 10 minutes a day. Uh, let's just say as an average 
um, 10 minutes a day where you're sitting and say you settle your attention on the feeling of the breath or something that is already happening. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the feeling of your hands touching, something like that. And the important part of that exercise is when your mind has already wandered mm-hmm. or you've fallen asleep. And it's the recovery. It's the starting over. Uh, you can also do that walking. And in walking meditation, let's say 10 minutes, uh, eyes open. You know, you might use the breath or you might just use your, the feeling of your feet against the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, again, something simple, something ordinary. So. It's an encapsulated period that's dedicated just to the deepening of awareness. I mean, your mind might go everywhere, but it doesn't matter. Yes. Other category of practice is what we sometimes call short moments many times. That's like maybe the most famous recommendation came from uh, the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh who said, don't pick up your phone on the first ring. Let Mm. it ring three times and breathe, and then you pick it up. Uh, you know, it's just some signal in your life that says, okay, let me take a breath instead of full steam ahead, you know. Uh, I have friends, students who say to me, well, I've gotten in the habit of writing out the email and before I press send, I take a few breaths and then I read it again. Mm. Um, or sometimes we unitask instead of multitask, like if you're going to drink a cup of tea, Maybe for once, just drink the cup of tea. Don't also be checking your email at the same time. Mm. And you will feel the warmth of the teacup. You'll smell the tea. You'll taste the tea. It will be a lot more fulfilling than otherwise. And, you know, nothing that takes a huge long time that's going to, like, upend your to-do list. Just short moments. Mm -hmm. And it's a a very important way to practice as well. And it's fun. Mm. Got it. Beautiful. Uh, Sharon, I want to be respectful of your time. And just a final couple of questions as Mm -hmm. we kind of wrap the conversation. Uh, As you reflect on your life and everything you've been through and everything you've lived and you've been teaching for 45 years and um, you've obviously lived a lot, seen a lot. um, I'm curious if you were to share with the audience and those listening in, perhaps let's say three of the most valuable or important life lessons that you feel you've learned in your life that if you could pass these on to the next generation that you might feel would uh, evolve the next generation the most. I'm curious what the three lessons Hmm. would be. Um, I'll tell you one right off the top of my head because it's yes. something that I've been saying and thinking about a lot these days is it's okay to ask for help. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes we're very reluctant to reveal a vulnerability, but uh, maybe another one would be about the power of generosity, that we always have something to give, to quote the Buddha. It could be smiling at somebody. It could be thanking somebody. It could be listening to somebody. Yes. Um, like every day, try to practice generosity. And the other side of that is it's okay to ask. Mm. It's okay to ask when you need help. Mm. So that's two. <laughs> and three, uh-huh. I, I'd probably say uh, you're actually going to be okay. Everything will pass. Mm. Everything will pass. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. So 
that's a really important reminder. Everything will pass. Awesome. Uh, Sharon, what's a, if there was a, a homework assignment you could assign those listening in, uh, a simple practice or something that they could actually, you shared some things, but if there was something that folks listening in could go and do as a beginning point, meditation, mindfulness practice, could you assign a homework for those listening in? Uh, I'm going to do two. <laughs> as many as you want. <laughs> okay. Uh, one is I would I would actually start um, start with five minutes. You know, just take five minutes to yourself if you can, and sit down and just feel your experience and feel your breath because your breath is going to be a portable resource. It's like if you're alone and it's quiet. And you use the breath to come back to yourself, to come back to the moment when you've gotten lost. Then you'll be at work or you'll be commuting or you'll be walking down the street and it'll be chaotic and you'll start getting anxious and you can remember to breathe and it'll be right there for you. Mm -hmm. um, so practice where it's easy, you know, where it's viable. And then uh, the second one is see if you can help somebody today. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about fear and anxiety earlier, you know, I thought about I was in New York City in early March. I had just gotten there after a month of travel in California and things were starting to get really tense and there was so much that was unknown about how to behave and uh, more people were getting sick. And it was just like uh, and I, I was teaching um, and in a, a situation where the um, – the system in the place was that the speaker sits in the audience until they're formally introduced. Then you get up on the stage and start sitting in the audience. And the woman next to me was frantic with worry, you know, and I don't know if I should have come, but I came and it was, maybe it was a mistake. Nobody knows how, you know. And I said to her, well, you know, there, you could try breathing and that might really help you. And she wasn't interested. And then I said, you know, there's loving kindness meditation where you like wish yourself well and wish others well. And she wasn't interested. And then I just looked at her and I said, is there anyone you can help? And she lit up. Mm. And she said, oh, you know, I have, I have an elderly neighbor and maybe I could slip a note under her door and see if I can help her get groceries or something like that. And yeah. I thought, oh, look at that. Mm. Beautiful. Seeing if there's someone you can help. Mm -hmm. mm, it's a great place to start. Folks, you heard it. The homework assignment from, from Sharon <laughs> Charlesburg. Feeling your breath five minutes and really asking yourself, is there someone in my life I can help in some way? And sometimes we think help has to be a big thing, but it could just be a simple, mm -hmm. a simple act. It could be a text. It could be a phone call. Yes, it could be something. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. Sharon, I really love this conversation with you. And, you know, uh, I've long had so much respect for you and your work and your writing. So it's a real honor and pleasure to meet you. What's the best way people can find out about your work? What's the best website, best way that folks listening in can connect with, with you and what you're up to? Uh, well, I have a website. It's just SharonSalzberg.com. It's presently being redesigned, so it should be exciting and new. Awesome. And you have a podcast too, yes? The Meta Hour? Is I do, cool? yeah. M-E-T-T-A. Uh -huh. It's on the Be Here Now Network. Amazing. Folks, you heard it. SharonSalzberg.com. We'll post the link in the show notes. Everyone, I trust you enjoyed this interview. Take on the homework assignment. 
see if you can find someone in your life that you can help today. Uh, I would love to hear from all of you, anyone who's inspired. Send me an email, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. I'd love to know your key takeaways from this beautiful episode with the amazing Sharon Salzberg. Let me know your key takeaways and how your homework assignment is going. Also, download this episode, subscribe, and share it with those that you love. And I'll see you in next week's episode of Soul Talk. Love now, everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.